0: Luke chapter 20, we're continuing in the stories of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. Now, before I read the parable today, by the way, this is called the parable of the wicked tenants. The title of my sermon is the parable of the wicked, or the story of the wicked tenants on the nature of sin. Please know before we do that this parable can also be found in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 21. And there are slight differences in each of those tellings of the story. There's no real reason on my part that I chose to use the Luke passage other than I was in Luke and I thought, well, it's the most succinct passage on the three parables. But my observations, the observations that I'm going to be making today about what I believe are true, have come and have been harmonized with all three parables, just for you to know. So you can read those later if you want, but it would be true no matter which parable you read. Uh, Luke chapter twenty verses nine through nineteen says this. He began to tell the people this parable: a man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he went. Uh, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away, empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. That one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and this one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they disgusted among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And Jesus answered that question. He said, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, what then does the text or what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they did not because they feared the people. Okay, God's word. Uh, This morning we're going to be talking about an old, old religious word. The word is sin. So, what is sin? You know, I was looking up some definitions this week on sin, and it's hard to do because in modern progressive cultures like the ones we live in, If you notice, you probably never talk about sin at work, or most of us don't. Like, nobody really uses those words anymore. Um, It's kind of an old word. We don't like to use that word. It feels uh, harsh and archaic. So it was difficult to find modern authors or thinkers writing about the nature of sin. But this is one of the uh, definitions I found that I believe sums up modern thinking or psychology about sin. Spencer W. Kimball writes this. He says, rather briefly, but it's good, he says, sin is... The result of deep and unmet needs. In other words, this is where we're at today. Sin is, in other words, psychology, in essence. Sin is something inside of us that can be fixed with good psychology, with better thinking. And and by the way, that's one way to understand the world around us. And many of us understand our world that way. We're raised in homes where that's how we talk about other people and what they do. It's a way that I think even we give grace to one another. You know, we give emotional leeway to, to other fellow human beings because we realize that sin is psychology in some ways. And you know, we say people have bad days, right? So give them a little grace. People, all of us have stresses and anxieties and unpaid bills and, and people have been harmed in childhood. You know, there was this big push against bullies and now there's a big push about not bullying bullies because they've been hurt as well, right? And that's the, we're peeling back the psychology. All of us in here have had relationships that have hurt us. That causes us to hurt others. Some of us had a teacher say something to us, maybe like, you're dumb, Donnie. And you know, it sticks in our head. Or there was a bully in school or in grade school. And it affects us. All of these things are talked about. And, and I can enter into some of that and even agree with most of it. But really, is that sin? Is that what the Bible talks about, sin? Is that why we, we hurt God, and, and by trying to hurt him, we also hurt other people? Is it psychology? Or is sin much deeper and much stronger and much darker and much more sinister? Because the Bible doesn't really talk about psychology, right? We don't know why the prostitute was a prostitute, the tax collector was a tax collector, right? We would have done that. But the Bible does talk a lot about the human heart. And here's what it says about the human heart. It says the human heart is evil, only thinking evil all the time. Before the flood and after the flood, it says that. The Bible says that our heart is at enmity with God, you know that word? Enmity means we're, we're an enemy against God, which means, it means that in our heart, in our natural heart, in our natural mind, we hate God and we really want him to leave us alone. In our natural mind, in our natural hearts, we wish that God would die and we could be God. The Bible says that we're not just... Struggling, wounded, well-intentioned, loving children, kind of messing up, but we're looking for a hero to save the day. No, no, no. The Bible says the way to understand who we are is that we, we hate him, and we, we, want, we want to fight him, and we want to kill him because we want to control the story. I want to be the hero of the own story, my own story that I create. And if you're sitting there this morning and you say, you know, I'm not sure I can agree with that. That too is proof of sin. I got you. <laughs> Because sin won't even allow you or I to admit it. It covers that up as well. We are not, here's what I want to say, we are not at the core good people who do bad things from time to time. That's psychology. At our core, we're utterly evil, utterly vile, and we hide that from one another by adding on good things. You see, the nature of our flesh is bad. It doesn't mean that people always do bad things. We do lots of good things from time to time, and I'm talking about the world, not just Christians. Anybody, right? The guy at Walmart, the the banker that you go to, he does good things. But at our core, we're evil. The Bible says it's not psychology that has messed us up, it's sin. What does that mean? It means that something has been passed down by Adam and Eve into the human race to all of my forefathers that then hit my great-grandfather, that then hit my grandfather, who was a drunk and a mean guy, and who was a coal miner in Kentucky, that then was passed down to my dad, who, by the grace of God, was saved, and, and began to change a family because of that, and then passed down to me. And that I'm passing down to my poor children. It's, it's, it's coming through me. And the Bible says that's not psychology. It's a disease of evil intent towards God. And that's what this parable is all about. In fact, the biblical irony of this parable, if you just follow with me for a minute, is Jesus is telling, he's talking specifically to religious leaders, right? Pharisees and leaders of, of, of the law, uh, lawyers of the law, and he's telling these people that, no, 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 he's saying, you guys are really evil. You're not just, you don't just do bad things. Really, at the core, you're angry at God, you're mad at God, and, and you're not good at all, and you want to kill him. That's the purpose of the parables, to get them to see that. And they disagree, obviously. And they're so angry for him, for accusing them of being evil murderers of God, that they want to grab him and kill him. Do you think about that? Do you see the irony? How dare you call us evil murderers of God? Let's grab God and kill him. They prove what he's saying. So this is what we're going to do this morning because sin is most clearly seen in relationships. You know, we all talk about sin and it's inside of us, but the way we can see it clearly is in our relationships, broken relationships. Because sin always destroys relationships. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, what happened? There's sin. Sin comes alive and what did it do? At first it destroyed their relationship with God. Remember, we were afraid of you. Why were they afraid of God? There's no reason. They they were never afraid of him before. And now they're hiding. Sin destroyed their relationship with one another. They're hiding from one another because they're naked. And then Adam throws her under the bus. The woman you gave me made me sin, right? Completely ready to, for God to kill her and get, get a different woman, right? It destroyed their relationship with creation. The creation scatters from them. And now suddenly they have to kill an animal for the first time in the Garden of Eden. Blood is shed to cover their bodies. Now, think about that. They, they weren't eating animals they had to kill, these animals were probably talking and gentle, loving, they killed animals suddenly to cover their sin. And Adam lived for 930 some years, right? So just think how many animals he killed, you know, over the decades to cover himself. So all of the relationships now are messed up because of what was inside of them. So this is what we're going to talk, do today with the parable. We're going to talk about the tenets, because we'll get to this later, but we're the tenants. But we're going to see sin in their relationships. And there's three primary relationships in this parable. There's the relationship that they have with the owner of the vineyard. There's the relationship that they have with the various slaves or messengers that come to them. And there's the relationship that they have with the owner's son. And how do they do in those relationships? Before we do this, please note, because good hermeneutics is important... There is an immediate translation and impact on the hearers of these words in Jesus' day. All three gospel accounts tell us that the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to specifically with this parable all recognize that Jesus was talking to them about them, and that's why they wanted to kill them. So if we know that what the immediate message is, let me put this on the board. These are what the immediate translation was for them if you lived then. The vineyard would have been the kingdom of God, meaning the specific nation of God. The landowner is obviously God. The tenants, they knew they were talking about them, the Jewish religious leaders. The prophets, the slaves, the messengers that Jesus sent were the Old Testament prophets all the way up to John the Baptist that they kept killing when they came with word. And then finally, the son was obviously Jesus Christ. But this parable has a secondary audience and a secondary application as well. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, because we're reading it. That's why. We're reading it. There's lots of things that Jesus said specifically to people around him that we'll never know. The fact that we're reading it means that there must be an application beyond the specific crowd he's talking to. Do you amen that? Because obviously Jesus isn't telling a story for us to look out at as another party and just gloat over the people he's being mean to. It wouldn't be in there for that reason. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, "...all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness." So Jesus wanted us to hear this parable as well, and therefore it's in three different Gospels. So this is how I'm going to translate, correlate the main players of the parable for us today. And I think, I, think, I pray that God would agree with this because it's obviously the same meanings happen. For us, <coughs> the vineyard, in, I'm going to include the entire kingdom of God, everything that God owns and has created. The landowner is still God, obviously. The tenants are humans, all human beings, Christian, non-Christian, like just people. Garden of Eden stuff here. We're all tenants. The messengers are, yes, prophets, but I say more than that for us today because most of us say, "What, what prophet? The prophets are prophetic words, prophetic people, prophetic events, okay? And I'll explain that later. And then the son is the same son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's our meaning today. Now let's get into the story. What, the first point is that the tenants have a relationship with the landowner. What is that relationship like? Well, here's what I've said. The tenants are human beings, okay? So if God is the landowner, what does that mean? The landowner, what? He owns the land. <laughs> the landowner has created everything. The landowner, it's his investment, not ours. It's at the risk of his capital, not mine. Um, The Bible wants you to know that there's no story, in other words, without God giving us a story. I don't have a story. It's his. Everything is initiated by him. There's no tenant unless there's a landowner, is there? It's impossible to have a tenant without a landowner. It all, in other words, begins with God, initiated by God. So now what is a tenant? And you can look this up historically, but I'll tell you what a tenant is. A tenant, first of all, occupies the space that the landowner has given him. And then the tenant does two things primarily. A tenant does what the landowner asks him or her to do, right? Easy. And the tenant does that at the pleasure and profit of the landowner. Now, does that that make sense? It's really simple. A tenant, in other words, a tenant first says, imagine if you're a tenant. The first thing you say is, okay, thank you, I'm here, what do I do? Tell me what to do. What do you like to have happen? What do you not like to have happen? You have water here. Do you want it to go to the grapes? Do you want it to go to the orchard? What do I do about these crops? How do I take care of these animals? Right? Tell me how to tend your land. That's the first thing a tenant does. And secondly, a tenant believes and thinks with all of the knowledge that they have that all of this they are tending is at the pleasure and profit of the landowner. In other words, it's not for them. They don't get it. And there's an exchange here that's true for every human. It's a biblical exchange. That I get to exist, I get to have life, and I get purpose and meaning through him by his word, and it's for his glory. Man's chief end is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that was Eden. What did they do? They were glorifying God, enjoying him forever, they had purpose, they had relationship. And God gets the glory, the prophet with an F. The prophet, so to speak. So, if you look at our world today, you say, what's wrong? What's wrong with our world? Well, it's sin. It's not psychology. Now, we're not told explicitly how they felt about the landowner, but we know how they feel about the landowner after he leaves by how they act. And here's what I'm going to say. Just put this in your back pocket. We're going to talk about it. They somehow begin to believe and begin to think that the land is now theirs. Do you see it? And that the prophet, the glory, the pleasure is now for them. Do you see that in the parable? And the, my question for you, human being, whether you're Christian or not, is, is how about you? How are you viewing your own life today? Because you have a life, right? You have, most of you have a marriage. Most of you have a job. Most of you have a vehicle. Most of you have children in here. Most of you have a home. Even beyond the stuff of your life, you have an emotional life that's yours. You have an intellectual life that's yours. You have a will, right? You're autonomous. You have feelings. You have things that you want to happen. You have a heart. You have a mind. You, You probably have some money. You have plans. It's a huge thing to talk about in our culture is that you have dreams, okay? You have all of those things, and my question to you is, who is the owner of those things? The first sign in acknowledging our sin is to realize that by default, all of us in here, Christian and non-Christian alike, we wake up and we go around every, every day, we go about our days every day, and our default every day is that we tell ourselves that we are not tenants, we're owners of what we have and who we are. And the Bible is always telling us oh, it's not your talent, it's not your gifting, it's not your passion, it's not your looks, it's not your ideas, it's not your mind, it's not your intelligence, your tenants. Into the world I came naked, naked I shall return. And you don't live listen, the reason we don't live that way, the reason I don't live that way naturally is because of sin. Because sin tells you every day that you are special. You're the owner. You're the gifted one. It's your money, it's your time, it's your church, it's your marriage, it's your kids, it's your life, it's your thinking, it's yours. And most of us, especially Christians, can get by with God and even feeling that way until God crosses us in one of those areas. We're okay, we're okay, we're okay, and we can kind of, we live in pretend land until God crosses us, and then we're mad at him, we hate him. Why? Because the human condition is cursed and we're all tenants who think of ourselves as owners. And listen, and listen, this is more core than you think. This is, this is what our culture, people around you, even parents, always pushing this message to you. You know, uh, you, know you say, am I liberal or conservative? You know what a liberal will say? A liberal will say, it's my body. I'll do with my body what I want. Get out of my that's right. Get out of my choices about what I do with my body, right? And as Christians, we go, oh, I'm not sure that's true. That doesn't sound very moral. But then Christians have no problem saying, conservatives, get out of my money. I'll do with my money what I want. I earn this money. Who's to tell me what I do with my money? Or it's my gun rights. It's my land. It's my house. Just this last Tuesday, uh, we had a vote, right? The big vote. Don't you think that almost everybody was in there saying there's nothing more like, sacred to Americans than to even think... This is my vote. Is it? Is it your choice when you go into a voting booth? You see, that's what we think it means to be free. It means it's yours. I could go on and on and on, watch any commercial, because the world wants to convince you all of the time that you're an owner and it works well because that's our default. And so we go, ha, 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 right? I watch those commercials. I've been watching them lately with Heather with Christmas coming. And like somebody gets a new car because the husband loves the wife and she'll kind of look at me. And I'm or you know, a kiss begins with K and I'm kinda like I I feel the heat, you know, and I kinda look over and she's I could go on, you know, every because it gets in because we want it to get in. Like what don't I deserve to be loved, to be respected and, and and cherished because, you know? And, the, and every, they know what they're doing because Satan knows what he's doing. The Bible's message from beginning to end is that you are a tenant. And we will regurgitate that. And that's why we have to come back every Sunday. Which means, listen, if you're a tenant, there's two things you always know. First of all, whatever you're doing in your life, you should say first, what, now what did the owner want me to do? That's first. You don't want to even do that. That's the first thing a tenant does, because it's not your land. It's not, you're not even, you don't even exist without the landowner. So the first thing you do is, okay, what did he want me to do? And then secondly, you realize that whatever you are doing for him is for his glory, pleasure, and profit. Don't you see? Your life isn't your life. It's his, for his pleasure. Listen, let me give you an example. If you said to me, one of you came up to me after church and said, Don, you know, we kind of keep this secret, but we have a cabin in the Poconos. From my family that we own. It's a beautiful place. And I'm just thinking, I know pastoral families, it's difficult. You guys have two weeks of vacation coming up in December. I want you guys to stay there. Just go there for two weeks. Enjoy it on us. Listen, there's a couple things you have to do. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You need to stack some wood and keep that, you know, turn off the water and do a couple of things. Make sure you, you know, put this back in the fridge, whatever it is, whatever that list is, I'm saying, okay, we're on board. But, Go and enjoy it. We want your family to enjoy that. And I do, and it's amazing, right? There's this beautiful wood cabin with the snow falling around it. And I get into my room and it's a king bed. Oh, I, I don't have a king bed, right? I love king beds. Heather loves king beds. There's a beautiful king bed, wood everywhere. There's a wood floors, a wood stove, but we're not that isolated because there's also internet that's active and good. And there's TV and I can watch sports. The kids can play. There's a jacuzzi outside on the deck. As the snow's falling, I can go there and watch the deer at the salt lick every evening. And I just fall in love with this place. There's a catered chef that comes in, prepares meals early in the day, and then leaves them in the fridge. Right? Now, RG comes in every day. And we have to kick him out every evening. You know, oh, But listen, those two weeks are up. And it's amazing. And I come back and, you know, we talk a little bit and, and Heather says, go ahead. Yeah, you, you can ask them. And I, I, you know, I go to them and I say, you know what? It was amazing. Do you think maybe next year we can plan our trip around that? We can come back to your place again next year? And they say, oh, sure. No, that's fine. Plan it for next year. And I do next year. And then a year after that, and the year after that. Now listen, watch out. Five years later, the owners of the cabin say, you know, Don, Heather, we love you guys so much. And there's these other couples that we love so much. They're going through a difficult time. We'd really love to get them into the cabin during this time. Listen, you guys maybe choose a different time. We love you, though. It's not really personal. But we can't let you stay there this year anymore. Now, I'm going to be gracious to their face, I think. But in my heart, I'm going to be mad. And who knows, I might even hate them for a little bit. Why? Where's that coming from? Right? Sin. Thanks, Doug. Sin. Why? Is that because I have unmet needs? No, because sin from Adam tells me every day that I am the owner, even of your cabin, not a tenant. All the time it's telling me that. And we all, end, we all live under the illusion that we're independent and autonomous and deserving, and we never want to believe that we're completely dependent, utterly at his mercy, and explicitly unworthy. And knowing that causes hatred to God. In fact, just sometimes me telling you that might cause you to say, I don't like this guy. Because we want to reject that message, because it hurts. But on the other hand, you can't escape it. So the, so the landowner, the Bible says he sends someone. The Bible, in the, other, in the other parables, he calls them messengers. In my text, he called them a slave. Same thing. But the messenger or the slave comes back to check in on the land, right? To give a report, but also to receive some of the profit that the tenants had supposedly been working on. And they beat him. And the question for you is, why? What happened? Because the slave, <coughs> and you know why, because the messenger is a reminder to them of the actual relationship. Do you see it? The, just the fact that there is a messenger reminds them that there's a landowner and that they're tenants. And you know what? For all of us, it's easier to just beat up the messenger and pretend that we're owners than to face the messenger. Welcome to the human race. Which brings us to our second relationship, which is the tenant's relationship with the messengers, which I just started to talk about. Now, Here's the great thing about God is he knows who we are, he knows our condition, so it's okay. Like, don't feel scared that God knows about our sin today. That's why he's sending messengers. He's sending messengers, and those messengers means they could be actual people in our lives, they could be events in our lives, or they could be circumstances that happen into our lives, that come into our lives, but all of them come to do the bidding of God to remind us of our true hope, which is the landowner. Now, let me define it further. A messenger comes to remind us What? The same two things that we're not doing. A messenger comes first to say, you can't just do things your own way. There's a landowner. And secondly, they come to say, and this isn't yours, guys. The profit I need to go give to the landowner. You see? The two things we don't want to admit is why the messenger comes. In other words, they remind us that we're not owners. They come to reestablish the garden relationship. God, in his mercy, does not leave us alone in our sin. That's the story of the Bible. Out of his love, he sends messengers after messengers after messengers after messengers to help redirect our lives back to him. And he is our only hope, our only opportunity for peace and purpose and profit. Amen? Now, because of our condition of sin, listen to this, we'll never welcome messengers. Because you have sin in your heart, you will never welcome messengers. Now listen, it doesn't mean you'll hate them, you will as a non-Christian, and even as a Christian you may, as an immature non-Christian, or as an immature Christian you might hate them. I'm telling you, as a mature Christian who's been dealing with this stuff for 20 years, when messengers come into my life, I have to immediately spend a lot of time with the Holy Spirit so that I, but, that I don't hate what's going on. But still, my default is to hate the messenger. That's right. Now, let, now listen. Who is the messenger? And I've already said, it could, be, it could be a pastor. It could be a pastor, an actual prophet, who comes and tells you the word of God to redirect your heart back to God. But it could also be a friend. It could be a friend who tells you the truth over lunch when you don't want to hear it. And you have a choice. And many of us will dump the friendship. It could be, more, it could be a grandparent. It could be a mom or a dad, and you get to go in college, and you run from that message. It could be a Christian counselor, and you have a choice. Do I listen? Do I work through this? Or do I simply just say, this, forget it, I'm, I want a different counselor, you see? But more than that, it could be people, yes, but it could also be an event. It could be cancer. It could be a heart condition. It could be a bad back. It could be an adoption process where you know that God is telling you what to do in this adoption process and yet it still goes south. Or you even get the child and it's awful for your family. It could be a death, it could be a brother or a sister who dies or a parent or a grandparent or a little baby. It could be your marriage when it falls apart, it could be the loss of employment or or it can be consequences of sin, right? You could be out In the garden one day, thinking everything's great, and it's your day, and it's your garden, and you cut your foot, and now it's infected. That's a messenger of God reminding you. Self-inflicted wounds. But here's the consistent thing. Here's how you know it's a messenger. Because all of the messengers tell us the same thing. What do they tell us? If we listen, by the way, we hate the message, but here's the message. It's really simple. Are you ready? You're not an owner. That's all it is. It feels like you're losing control. Because the messenger's saying, you're not in control. You see? Life is out of control. We can't really call the shots, even though we thought we could. We can't. There is a landowner. We, listen, if you came to me, if, a, if somebody going to college, a kid came to me and says, listen, tell me, wh- tell me everything that I can do correctly so that I don't hurt myself in life. I could probably come up with that list, and life will still hurt you because the messenger comes. Now, you can you can get by uh, without having a messenger for a while, maybe. For some of us, for, for those of you who have been hurt in childhood, you had to learn early on, didn't you, that you're only a tenant and life is out of control. But some of you had good parents who loved you well and loved you correctly and appropriately. And, and, and so you could kind of have a nest where you didn't realize that life is out of control and you could go to college and you could actually not flunk out of college and actually do well. And you could actually marry your college sweetheart or, or handsome you know, Barbie Ken. I don't, you know, but you marry that guy, that guy or woman that says, and, and it all works out. And you could actually have a child that actually doesn't die and you can actually get your first job and make a lot of money. But, but listen, the messenger's coming. And you can prolong the inevitable for a while. If you're lucky, I don't think you're lucky, but that's how we would see it. Maybe even a long while you can avoid it into adulthood. But God, if you want some truth here, God will never, ever, ever let you go all the way to your grave thinking that you're in charge. You know why? Because the final act of the grave is proof that you're not in charge. There's a, there's a, do- there's a, there's a wall at the end, if you haven't been hit anywhere else, that tells you you're out of, it's out of control. I always laugh at these really, really rich people who are I forget the name of cryogenics or whatever. It's like even there, they're like, well, maybe I'll freeze my body. And I can get through the wall on the other side in a hundred years and they'll know how to conquer death. Crazy. A messenger will come into your life at some point in your life, and for many of us, many times in our lives, and the messengers are saying the same thing. You're not in control. It was never yours. Nothing was ever yours. All of the things you had aren't really yours. Not even your own life. And the reason God keeps sending messengers is to break through our sin nature, our self-disillusionment, to get us to give our lives back to God. Because if we don't give our lives back to God, what happens? He says, fine, it's your life. And a life without God is what? It's still eternal, isn't it? But it's eternity in hell. Because what is hell? Forget fires and guys in red tights with the pitchforks. Listen, here's what heaven is. If you're going to heaven, it's as if God is saying to you, my will be done in your life. In other words, the way to heaven is through your submission and acceptance of what God has done for you. God's saying, my will is being accomplished in your life. Through submission, God's will, through my acceptance, God's will is accomplished, I get into heaven. Hell is simply God saying, your will be done. It's defiance, it's, it's unwilling to submit. It's Frank Sinatra. I'll do it my way. And God says, okay, your will be done. If God's in your car, so to speak, he's got the steering wheel. If you think you have the steering wheel and God's a passenger, he's not in that car. Listen, God's grace through, through our sanctification process, I think there's a way God can scoot over there we finally give him the wheel. But don't ever think you can go through your life with God as a passenger to you. A messenger feels like a person or an event or a circumstance and they they break into our car while we're driving, they take the steering wheel and they crash the car. It feels like a wreck because of our sin nature. That's why it feels that way, because we're sinners. But what's the purpose? What's God doing? What's the love behind it? The motivation from God is to get us to say, after the crash, you're right, God I'm done driving, you drive my car. Wherever it goes, I'm going to sit here and trust you because it's your car, it's your life, it's your dreams, not mine, it's your engine, not mine, it's your gas, not mine, it's your glory, not mine. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my life. How are you treating your messengers? The last relationship we see is the tenant's relationship with the landowner's son. And we won't spend long here because it's pretty obvious, but in all three parables, if you read them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke There's an ascending level of ill-treatment towards the messengers sent by the landowner. That's the consistent in all three. You can read them all, and you'll see that each one gets treated more harshly than the one before. Now, in Luke, it's the hardest one to decipher that, but still it's there. It gets more grim. For instance, he says, one is beaten, then the second one is beaten and treated shamefully, and then the third one is wounded and cast out to die. You see, each one with an ascending level of treatment. And then Jesus says, at that point, God, the landowner, at that point says, hmm, what should I do with this situation? I know. I'll send my son, and maybe they'll love and respect him. Now, this is where we have to be careful not to get theology from a parable. Why? No father would think this. No father would do this, would they? No father would think after that, treatment that then a son would be a good idea to send to the situation. This would have been a bad father. So there's not theology here. Second reason is this isn't how it happened. This isn't why Jesus came. This isn't how he came. We know from, (coughs) excuse me, we know from Acts chapter 2 that Jesus, as Peter says in verse 23, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Do you see that? 2 Timothy 1.9 says that we are saved by the grace of God in that, and I quote, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Titus 1.2 tells us that our hope for eternal life comes through Jesus Christ and that he was promised before the ages began. So don't get your theology about why God sent his son in this scripture. He wasn't kind of a well-meaning, ignorant father who thought maybe it would work out if he sent his son. Jesus knew why he came. Jesus volunteered for the mission, the Bible says, before we were created and even fell. And God and Jesus knew exactly what would happen, how it would transpire, when it would transpire. So that's not what the message is in the parable. So what is the message? Here's the message essentially. Jesus is saying, finally, if you see how much our sin colors our relationships, he says, listen, you hate God so much you know, Romans 8, 7 says that in the natural mind, in other words, that just means the mind that you're born with. If you don't do anything with your mind, if it's not transformed by the Holy Spirit, your natural mind, Romans 8, 7 says, is enmity with God. Now, Paul doesn't say that we just have enmity for God or that we think bad thoughts or that we want to do bad. He says that we're born and that the mind itself is evil against God. Charles Spurgeon has a great sermon about this entitled, the carnal mind enmity against God. And it's a great read because this is what he talks about. And here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Charles Spurgeon was saying. Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that in our minds, we hate God naturally. In other words, if you do nothing with your mind, you're born to hate him. You're bent against God. In fact, you hate him so much that when we finally get close enough to to touch him, to talk to him, to ask questions of him, to walk with him, when God finally makes himself vulnerable enough to be on our level, we kill him. Do you see that? When he finally comes to our level, we say, finally, and we kill him. I know, I, know it's, I know it feels cute when a little child, you know, like Olivia, and she's five, and I'm trying to show her how to put a few toys together, and she says, no, 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 I can do it, I can do it. And there's a way that a parent says, oh, that's, that's cute. That is sin already thinking that she knows more than a 47-year-old father. Don't you think you have the same issues with God? You see, the Bible tells us that we hate him so much that when we finally get our hands on him, we nail him to a cross. That's how much we hate God. Now, if you refuse to believe that, if you refuse that you are somebody who would do that to God, my question is, then how can you be a Christian? How did you come into the family of God? Like, right? Arlene? Because a Christian is the only one who really knows it. Why? Because a Christian has had the Holy Spirit awaken them to their sin nature. The first step in getting in is the bad news. And the first step to being saved is to know that's who you are, so that you can bring in the hope that Jesus provides. We could not come to the knowledge of our sin nature without the help of God. Listen to this. God, the Father, the amazing Father, through His grace, created us, molded us in our mother's womb gave us life, breathed life into us, allowed us to be born, made a plan from the beginning of time for our salvation. And then Jesus Christ, his son, came to fulfill that plan in perfect obedience to his father with a substitutionary death in my place and then a resurrected life that's also for me. And then the Holy Spirit comes after Jesus Christ to awaken me to my condition, to draw me to that truth and to to the, the, the faith that I must have. The Holy Spirit's doing his work in my life for me to see that so that I can accept it. So what does that mean? It means we're so bad, we're so evil, we're so lost that it takes nothing less than the entire Trinity to save us. And if you're a Christian, you know it. You're sitting there saying, absolutely. Without the Holy Spirit, no way. I'll do what I do. I don't. This is all a bunch of fatuity. I don't know these words. I can't swear from the pulpit, but you know what I mean. <laughs> this is baloney. This doesn't make... I don't, I'm not going to accept this. Uh, there's no way, Pastor Don. I, this is, you're asking me to go down? I'm not going to go down. That's your sin. If you're a Christian, you know this. Because although... Listen, now I'm talking to Christians now, not just humans. You know this because you've been saved by grace, but the Bible says you've been reconciled to God, Right? but you still know that although you've left Egypt, right, like the Old Testament, although you've left Egypt and you now have a new master, Egypt still lives in you. You wake up every day and you say, oh, I remember the leaks in Egypt. I remember how good it felt to just do what I wanted every day, right? Have you ever wondered, let me me just reason with me. Have you ever wondered how some of you can listen to a sermon like today and you'll, you'll be struck, you'll say, yeah, I get it. It is me it's me. It's not anybody else. It's me. Or, or you'll or you listen to a Christian song or you'll go to a Christian concert and you'll be weeping and you get it or an event like that. Or a Christian friend, something happens and you just melt and you say, yes, I, it's me. I know it's me. I love him. I see God. I submit to him. And then two days later, you wake up out of your bed sideways and grouchy and mean. It, it doesn't last. It's like you're breaking the ice on your heart over and over and over again. You're like that Joe guy in Little Abner. Remember that cartoon where he walked around? And he had this cloud of rain wherever he went. And you're like, "What is this? What? There's no reason for it, right? Every, I, I thought I was soft, and now I'm, and now it's all hard again. And now I feel, without anybody telling me, life doesn't have purpose. I'm tired of being pushed around. Listen, this is your pastor talking. I'm tired. I want to punch the first person I see sometimes when I wake up. What? What is that? Why? I'm supposed to be loving and gentle and kind, and I'm just, I'm driving, and I don't like the guy in front of me because I don't like the color of his car. It doesn't make any sense, Mary, I'm sorry. But he's driving too slow, or he pulled out too fast, and now I don't like them, right? And I'm tired because life isn't fair, and I don't make enough money, and my family's hurting, and I'm tired of being a doormat. And I have rights, and I have a voice, and I'm tired, and I'm mad, and I don't want to submit. I'm tired of going down. I know which way I'm supposed to go, but I'm tired of that way. I want my way. What? What is that? What is it? Sin. 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 Listen, sin. Church people, Sunday school teachers, whoever you are, that tell people about sin. Sin is not primarily doing bad things. Sin is not primarily not doing good things. Sin is hatred towards God that is in our hearts where I want to be my own master. I want to be in control. And I have to slay that, Valerie. I have to slay it over and over and over and over again. You know, the the most common thing that people on this path tell me is they say, Don, I thought I was through. I thought I was in there. And then here it comes again. And I have to go there again? And yes, yes, you do. And listen, here's, here's the great, let me talk now about the grace of God. You leave today and you say, I'm unwilling to do it. I, I'm unwilling to do that work. I don't want to have to go through these emotions and think about what I'm supposed to do with my life and my job and my marriage and everything else. I don't want to be in the passenger seat. <sighs> Beware. Grace will send a messenger. And that's God's way of saying, please know that your life is not what you think it is. You don't really have control of it. Now, some of you today, hopefully most of you, will say, I, I am willing. I'm willing to do the work. I, I want to, I know this route is right. I know it's in the Bible. I cannot believe prosperity, gospel, and we get rich and everything's great if we believe Jesus. I see that it's not true. I'm going to go through. I'm going to go down. I'm going to submit. It's not about me. It's about God. Okay. Amen to that. But listen, you know what? You still can't do it. This is what I want to to say to heal your heart. This is why Jesus came. Because no matter how hard you try, you can't slay the sin nature completely. And Jesus Christ comes. And what's the cross about? What is the gospel the gospel is there's a moment in history history where God either kills the haters or the haters kill him. And all of the angels are standing at the ready with their swords drawn. Just give me the word. These haters of God will slay them. Just give, just give me the word, God. Just give me the word. I'm coming down. I'm going to slay them. And, and the choice is there for Jesus. And Jesus said, no, no, no. I would rather God be killed than the haters be killed. And we say, okay, wow. Okay, I get that. But listen, let me go even deeper than that. God didn't kill the haters, but he killed the hatred. And he killed the hatred by allowing the hatred to kill him. Can, can you go there with me? Listen to this. The hatred that slayed Jesus was slayed itself by the slaying of Jesus. That's the gospel. Ephesians 2, verses 15 and 16 says this. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. How does he do this? How does he make peace? And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. By the hostility killing them, killing him, the hostility was killed. Do you see it? We hated him so much That God used our hatred to be the means through which his grace would come. Oh, like that's, this is, this stuff should make you fall to, to see how amazing this is. You know what these guys say in the parable? They say, it's stupid that they said this, but they say, oh, here comes the son. Let's kill him. So the inheritance will be ours. It reminded me of the brothers with Joseph, right? Oh, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and then he'll be out of the way and the inheritance will be ours. You know what's true in both cases? That's exactly how they got the inheritance. Joseph was able to save his brothers because they put him in a pit and sold him into slavery. We're able to have eternal life because Jesus Christ was slayed through our hatred. Amen. Jesus says, I am, I am. That's so great. I am the stone that the builders rejected. And then he says, and yet, I am the chief cornerstone. And then he said at the end of the text, you have two choices. He doesn't give any other choices. He says, you do nothing. Like I said today, don't do anything. Just who you are is who you are. Don't believe a word I said about sin. Deny the truth in your carnal mind. Walk out and go about your day deny your sin, deny your hatred, and someday, he says, that stone will crush you. Someday, the stone of the truth of Jesus Christ will crush you. Or, he says, you can break your lives upon that stone and God will rebuild it upon the grace of his Son through the work of the Holy Spirit, and you will even have the hope to act and behave in line with your cornerstone. Now, I don't know about you, but here's, here's why it's hard to be a preacher sometimes. Is neither one of those feel like it's good news, does it? <laughs> you know? It's like, uh. So, here's my choice. One's bad news, and one is awful, eternal news. But get through it with me. Because I don't like to admit my sin nature. I don't like to admit my hatred of God. I don't like to admit my pride, my desire to control my life. And if I don't, you know what? If I don't, I can probably say to some of you, you're going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And, until I'm not. See, I'm going to be okay and tell am not, and, and someday that stone will crush me, and I'll never be okay again, or you can take it upon yourself and say, I'm not okay now. Admit the bad news, break upon the rock of Jesus, scatter to a thousand or a million pieces, I don't care, but then, then, then the great news is that you're reconciled to God, and this isn't your home. And he's building a home for you. And now you can build your life upon a new rock, a new cornerstone, and nothing can take it away, eternally secure in the arms of Jesus. Now, the question for you today, what are you going to do? Do you want bad news or do you want awful news?